When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The more my company grows, the harder it is to stay focused on our core product. I need to master DE&I, ESG, M&A, even how to adapt to hybrid working. The more hats I wear, the more I need Aon. They bring their whole team to the table and give me access to great minds in each discipline. So as my business grows, my knowledge expands and I see things more clearly. Better decisions. Aon. Impact of Influence, the tragic story of a powerful South Carolina family and the mysterious deaths that they are linked to. Uh, welcome, everybody. We are ready to roll again in another episode. This is kind of an interesting bonus episode, I guess. You'll uh, find out what that's all about in a second, but I got to point out that it's another episode of me in quarantine. That's why it sounds a little bit different as Seton's in Dwayne's Groove Shack studio, and uh, I am in my little room, all alone. That's okay. Um, but anyway, everybody, my family's healthy. We're going to get through this. My wife and daughters uh, tested positive for COVID. Seton's been running around because her son was putting a lot of uh, schoolwork on her plate at the last minute. Did you get through that? Yes, we did. We made it through. We got the hot <laughs> glue gun out. So yeah. that's always a challenge. Oh, wow, look at you. Uh, so we're going to talk about this drug history that they have in uh, South Carolina. And we want to uh, tell you to reach out to us. And how can they do that, Seaton? Yes, you can reach us on Facebook at Murdoch Podcast. And definitely feel free to reach out to us and also rate us if you like us. Um, and we are so grateful to everyone who is listening. And before we get started, I want to welcome a new sponsor. Give it up for Founders Federal Credit Union. Love it. Uh, Seaton. I talk about this chatter we hear about the Murdochs, uh, Alec Murdoch and drugs. Um, yes, there has been a lot of chatter about Alec and drugs. We know that he is alleging that he has a 20-year-long opioid addiction. We've also heard about a grand jury looking into Alec's connection to this gang in Walterboro called the Cowboys. Uh, he has allegedly has some connections to them where he's been writing checks to couriers and they have been going to him. Uh, we also know that there's some property connections to a Bulware family. Back in 1983, there were some charges against Barrett Thomas Bulware, who was 27, and his father, Barrett Bulware. But those charges were subsequently dropped after a key government witness was killed when he stepped in front of a car in Florida. Um, these charges were stemming from a 1983 sting off of the coast of Buford, where they found some marijuana on a shrimp boat. And Barrett T. Bulware died in 2018. His dad had passed six years earlier. Commercial fishermen and shrimpers, and they had that tie to uh, drugs, as you said. And see, there's also, I guess, a little tie to Alec with that, with some property and stuff, right? Right. I think they, they co-owned some property, and the Moselle property was sold to them from the Bulware family. 
So we thought it would be interesting to hear about an area in South Carolina where the Murdoch story takes place. And this area was also the home of a major drug kingpins in the 70s and early 80s. Uh, Yes, and that is why we have this author on. This is going to give you, I think, the flavor of the low country in South Carolina. So it is the author of Jackpot, High Times, High Seas, and the sting that launched the war on drugs. Jason Ryan joins us. Hi, Jason. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me on. I feel the story, the book, is about multiple things and multiple levels of stories. But how would you, what would your elevator pitch say for somebody uh, about this book? Oh, sure. Operation Jackpot was basically the story of a couple of bored South Carolinian boys who uh, decided to make the most of their lives and make a lot of money and have a lot of fun just doing it in an illegal way, unfortunately. So they traveled the world, uh, made tons of money, uh, saw and enjoyed the finest things in life. And then it all came to a big crash when they got caught and uh, Uncle Sam came prowling around and uh, looking at what they were alleged to have done and, and started uncovering a massive criminal conspiracy that, um, and, you know, involved dozens of people. And the thing why I say it's, uh, you know, kind of leveled is that you could say it's a story about business. You could say it's a story about friendships. You could say it's a story about relationships. You could say it's a story about the start of the drug war. So you know, there's many Many things that I, I felt were, were layered in this book. So I, I appreciate the way that it was written like that. Well, right. It, it is a complex story on its surface. It might seem simple. A couple people bringing in pot uh, at midnight in the marsh, uh, in the middle of nowhere, and getting away with it. But as you alluded to, there are a lot of uh, things that are brought up culturally, um, societally, morally in this story. You have to make a choice of whether to rat on your friends or not to save your own skin. You have to make a choice whether to cheat on your wife and girlfriend when you have the opportunity to uh, be with so many different beautiful women around the world. Um, You have the choices to face as to when do you get out? When's enough money enough? Um, When does it get when do the stakes get too high? And when do when does the consequence become too great to continue what you're doing? And unfortunately, life moves so fast for these guys. And when they're under the influence of um, different substances, you don't really stop to pause and think of that or at least consider it uh, appropriately. And you just keep going forward. And that was the downfall, I think, of a lot of the people is they didn't um, stop to think of what are the consequences, especially if I keep getting away with it. So for people who are new to the story, can you kind of describe who the gentlemen smugglers are? Sure. I'd I'd say the gentlemen smugglers are a group of people who uh, push the limits and dared the world to show them what happens when you break all the rules. So these were, uh, generally speaking, uh, young men from South Carolina or the South. They were smart, but not um, necessarily book smart or interested in academics. So they used their smarts elsewhere. They dropped out of college uh, or didn't go to college and started dealing small amounts of pot. And it got bigger and bigger and bigger. They decided, why should we be the small-time dealers? We can go and get the pot ourselves and become the wholesalers. And so they became professional smugglers in uh, their young 20s and were millionaires by the age of 25, most of them. On paper, it's pretty simple. You get a boat, you head south to Jamaica or Columbia, South America. You load it up with as much uh, pot that can fit on it, hide it below if possible, uh, and sail back up and wait for the dark darkness to come and find an abandoned dock and unload it and then sell it. So, um, you know, that said, it's it's just a few steps, but it's extremely complicated and required a very special type of person to uh, to do this and to do it well. Why do they call themselves the gentlemen smugglers? There are a couple of differences with the gentlemen smugglers, and they were named that because they chose not to carry guns. It was all about good vibes, good times. 
uh, handshake deals, even with millions of dollars involved. The gentleman smugglers are a rarity in that there's no violence, uh, no threat of being killed when you did business with them. And that was refreshing. I call it a golden age of marijuana trafficking, golden age <laughs> of drug smuggling before you worried about uh, Uzis coming out or, um, you know, having your, you know, being robbed and your uh, throat slit, things like that. Yeah, it's definitely not Narcos, what you see now on a lot of the, the HBO <laughs> yeah. specials and that sort of thing. You, you definitely get a different vibe from these men. But I was surprised that all of these young men who grew up in the Bible Belt, you know, a lot of them had close families, professional parents, um, why they would take the risk of getting involved in drug smuggling. Life was just too boring otherwise. They didn't want to grow up and have the same jobs their dad did and work at the bank, work as a lawyer. Uh, they were rebels and they were hippies too. This was, you know, things come later to South Carolina. So late 60s, early 70s was a very countercultural kind of time. Even if it had already hit in California and other parts of the United States uh, elsewhere beforehand. In South Carolina, it was still a very hippieish time when these guys are going to college or considering going to college. And they just didn't want to live in Columbia, South Carolina. I, call, I think I call it a, a boring hellhole or something like that in the book. <laughs> I don't mean to be rude to Columbia, but for these men in particular, it was just not satisfying. They wanted to be near the water. They wanted to be near other young people where the action was. So they moved to Miami and Key West uh, and, and Florida in general because there was more of a, a pulse down there. Uh, the problem was uh, there were a lot of drug smugglers in that area. And over time, uh, the police were starting to catch on to things. It got too crowded. So the gentleman smugglers reluctantly moved back to South Carolina because it was a great place to smuggle. Maybe not their favorite place to live, but uh, there was very little law enforcement. The DEA didn't even have a boat at that point in South Carolina. I think there was a single DEA agent who was uh, stationed. His territory was from Wilmington, North Carolina, down to Savannah. So it was beyond the, uh, South Carolina even. So the, the cops were just severely outmatched by these savvy smugglers who just, again, um, you know, Every couple months would bring in 10, 20, 30,000 pounds of pot or hash into the marshes of South Carolina or other parts of the East Coast. You mentioned the marshes. I want to give people a vibe who aren't from South Carolina, what the the layout of the waterways and the marshes and the fluff mud and all that stuff that goes with it. It's, it's, a, it's a region that's unlike others. You have, say, in Florida, you have the Everglades. In Louisiana, you have the bayou, things like that. And in low country South Carolina... You have a certain vibe and a certain waterways that work well. Explain to people who are unfamiliar what that's, because you describe it brilliantly in the book, but describe it to people what that area is like. I consider the marshes of the low country to be a giant maze. I really like to look at uh, the marsh through satellite photos, and you can get an appreciation of how these, uh, the word that I come back to a lot of times is capillaries or blood vessels. You look the the um the creeks run through and rivers run through the marshes and just keep splitting up into smaller little waterways. So it's very easy to get lost. It's very uh, hard to patrol because there are so many uh, little turns you can take. And especially if you don't have a boat and if it's a dark out, if it's dark out, it's even harder. So uh, you have this giant maze that, and it's been used for centuries. Um, Blackbeard, the pirate used it to hide uh, from authorities. Then in the civil war, you had uh, blockade runners who were using the marshes and rivers in the South to run needed supplies into the Confederacy past the union blockade that was set up around the Southern United States, the naval blockade. Um, in the twenties and thirties during prohibition, you had rum runners using the marshes of South Carolina. Again, just an easy place to uh, go into and, and not be seen. 
And then, you know, I, I in my book, I describe the actions of these gentlemen smugglers who use the marshes in the 70s, 80s. You have so many different choices. It's not like there's just a few river. There are, there are you know, hundreds of inlets just in South Carolina. Then you can go south in Georgia, north and North Carolina and Virginia, and they have, uh, you know, marshes and a seaboard there as well. So it's just a great hiding place. It's also beautiful. All that said, it's not the easiest place to work. Uh, we have about six, seven, eight foot tides that come in and out of South Carolina every day. And so when you're bringing in these heavy boats that are sitting low in the water with uh, literal tons of marijuana on board, uh, you can easily scrape and get stuck on sandbars or oyster beds or things like that and be left high and dry um, in plain sight when the sun comes up. The, the oysters uh, cut, cut a lot of the people working uh, on the boats, unloading the uh, um, bales of marijuana. Uh, some of the docks they used weren't uh, reinforced enough to be carrying men, a um, bunch of men stomping on the docks carrying, you know, um, 100 pounds of pot in their hands or two bales or so. Wow. And so they would fall through the docks at times. Um, uh, there are like so many things that could go wrong. So it was a great place to smuggle. It poses challenges too. There are also mosquitoes, noceums, yes. all sorts of annoying insects that can bother you. It can be extremely hot and muggy in the summertime. So these guys earn their money. Uh, a lot of people say it was easy money, and it was to some extent, and it was certainly uh, an oversized payment when you got it, but it, it required a lot of work to get it. And you have to be a smart, um, sophisticated, talented criminal. Not anybody could do it. I was so surprised how they would go up to uh, just a random person's dock and, and unload there. You know, they just, I guess they stocked it out, but it just, it's, they seem very brazen. They were. They would um, exactly. It was no accident. They would find out um, which property owners were absent. Um, there were some big plantations, still are, on the intracoastal waterway north of Charleston near McCollinville. And um, these are wealthy people who owned it. Might just visit a couple times a year. And um, the smugglers would befriend the caretakers, for example, and get keys to the gates and just know when people would or wouldn't be there. Um, sometimes you just know neighbors out of town, so you can use that dock. Um, they were brazen and they did things. I will say they did some things to try to uh, cover their tracks. They planted, um, I will say planted, they cut a tree down and then stuck it in a hole uh, as a temporary <laughs> tree that would soon die, but it afforded them some cover. They had lookouts, of course, people with night vision in the bushes on radios to, you know, where if anyone was coming down a road, they try to be cautious. They did all the work to send a boat to South America, pay for the crew, get it back up here. This is, you know, a couple weeks trip avoiding the Coast Guard and the Navy, um, changing your registration flags, um, having a fake water line painted on the boat so it didn't look like it was sitting so low in the water, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and all that stuff, you wanted to make sure you were coming into a safe area where no one was going to bother you. So they they definitely did their homework, staked things out, and, and tried to find the best places that were the most secluded. One of the smugglers had mentioned, you know, he was out of it, he had made enough money, Riley, and that he was bored, basically you know, he, he missed the action. Right. There was absolutely no fix for the adrenaline rush you have setting it up and then being out there at night, uh, watching the ship come in rendezvousing, uh, you know, coordinating by radio and, and then unloading, uh, under moonlight. Right. And, and just men creeping quietly on the docks, bales of pot on their shoulders and, and shoving it into trucks. Sometimes they had to use a uh, sledgehammer to, to knock the final bales into the trucks because they wanted to wedge that last one in and use every available cubic inch. 
Uh, we talked about money earlier. So what did they spend it on? They spent it on boats, on women, on cars, on vacation homes, uh, and just daily life. You buy the finest steak on the menu, the best bottle of wine. You don't go commercial, you hire a Learjet to take you. As much fun as it was for some of them, certainly they kept in the game because it um, afforded them to keep living the lifestyle they were living. They had homes on the coast, on the water, on the beach, um, homes in Nantucket, La Jolla. They had some of the finest sailboats in the world, hands down. Um, and they used them, you know, it, it, what, was the brilliant, what was brilliant about these sailboats is it just seemed like they were rich pleasure cruisers down in the Caribbean, like of which there are plenty. Why would you use that nice a boat for that kind of activity? But that was kind of uh, the brilliance of, uh, of their, uh, their plane. So we know that we have some connections between uh, shrimpers and the Murdoch family, which is what our podcast is on. And in your book, you kind of mentioned how shrimpers became involved in the drug smuggling operations. Can you kind of explain that? I've talked a lot about sailboats being used, but also shrimp boats were an excellent candidate for smuggling. So uh, in South Carolina on the coast, there's a couple communities that have a lot of shrimpers. And sometimes you pull up the net and there's not much shrimp in them. So what are you going to do? How are you going to feed your family? These men had an opportunity in the 70s, and it was to not uh, catch shrimp, but catch pot. They called uh, floating bales a pot square grouper. So sometimes you hear fishermen talking about going to get a load of square grouper, <laughs> mongling pot. Um, so these shrimpers, a lot of them were down on their luck and could make more on a trip or in an evening, uh, even being just a lookout, than they could for the whole year uh, doing a legitimate um, career as a, as a fisherman or shrimper. So do you find any sort of interesting connection between Jackpot and the Murdoch story? So before you uh, answer that question, Jason, hold on. We're going to uh, shout out to our new sponsor. Yay, Founders Federal Credit Union, Seton. Would you love to lower your existing auto loan rate by 1%? Look no further than Founders Federal Credit Union. Refinance your current auto loan and we will beat your existing rate by 1%. Plus, make no payments for 90 days. Boats, motorcycles, and recreational vehicles are included. And we're talking a lot about boats in this episode. I don't know if they got this rate. Never mind. Whether it's for the car you drive daily or the boat that's reserved for the weekends, an auto loan from Founders Federal Credit Union, a smart and affordable way to pay. Founders features flexible terms, low rates, fast, friendly service, and 24-hour account access with Founders Online and the Founders app. Relax with Founders. Don't miss out. Apply today at foundersfcu.com backslash auto or at an office near you. Terms and conditions apply. Membership qualification required. Founders Federal Credit Union is federally insured by NCUA. Current auto loan must be with another financial institution. Okay, back to the question. What do you find interesting between the Murdoch story and Operation Jackpot? The thing that's interesting about the Murdoch case and also Operation Jackpot is that they occurred in roughly the same geographic area. And there's all this uh, with Operation Jackpot, we, you know, it's proven and, and people have admitted the crimes with the Murdochs. We're still resolving what exactly happened. And so, you know, it'd be clear to say that there's a lot of alleged crimes and some suspected crimes um, and that all of these occurred in the same area where jackpot occurred. And so you wonder, you know, why would this possibly be um, a place for a very deep um, seated and, and long running criminal conspiracies to occur? How could that happen? Is it a lack of oversight? Is it the rural character? Is it something in the history of the area that promotes um, rebellion and uh, against the law or against, you know, even, you know, uh, bigger than that against the government. Uh, he's seeing how South Carolina was the first state to secede and 
the Civil War started here with Fort Sumter. Um, so I think that's fascinating. And then there are all these other parallels where there's suspicions um, now with the Murdoch case, um, possibly unfounded, but nonetheless, people are wondering why would uh, Mr. Murdoch be in partnership with someone who, who was uh, accused of being a former marijuana smuggler and has so much waterfront land um, and also the, the presence of airstrips. And I can tell you, with at least with the gentleman smuggler, sure, they sometimes they would, um, beyond using the water, they would use airstrips, not as often, but you would um, land a, um, a big plane uh, full of pot and on just on a rural airstrip it might be on a plantation that's inland a little bit um it could be a municipal airport um there was one uh bust i describe in um in the book that happened in sylvania georgia so near savannah and um i'm trying to recall exactly but i think the the feds were were onto them and so they're just kind of waiting for the plane to land and and uh which is horrible horrible luck for the pilot but uh it's it's any any place whether it's an isolated marsh or an isolated plantation with an airstrip, any place you can go and land a big vehicle, um, that was attractive to uh, you know the people who were smuggling. Just to be fair, the Bulwer family has never been convicted of anything, but did you come across that name during any of your investigation? No, it's, it's not a name I was familiar with before I saw okay. it in the news um, okay. in the last couple of months. Operation Jackpot was a sprawling investigation that targeted four different criminal rings, and that wasn't even everyone, right? Uh, this was a fairly, marijuana smuggling was very common in the early 80s and 70s, and just with acquaintances I know in Charleston or if people find out that I wrote this book, Jackpot, they'll tell me, oh, I, you know, I was a lookout once. I lifted a few bales once. It's, it's pretty shocking how many people, uh, you know, lend a hand and uh, were involved, maybe not in a major level, uh, or they dated someone who was involved with that. So by no means was Operation Jackpot uh, definitive and, and caught every single pot smuggler in South Carolina. <laughs> uh, you know, one of the investigators said that, the, you know, one drug even a ring is, it's, uh, you know, the, the guys in Jackpot love to call it disorganized crime. So they bristle a little bit when the government makes these allegations and has charts and shows um, groups and a, a kind of defined hierarchy uh, that didn't exist, according to the smugglers. So it's very loose. And one partnership led to another, led to another, led to another. And so one of the investigators told me finally, he said, you know, you, you could investigate this forever, but some at some point you just need to draw a circle around it. All right, let's get into how Operation Jackpot started. Sure, a little background on the government side of the story. Um, Operation Jackpot started, I think, in 1982. And essentially, the government had been hearing uh, rumors and knowing that marijuana was coming into the country. Uh, you know, Nancy Reagan would lead the Just Say No campaign or be very vocal about that. Um, we had DARE education in classrooms. I certainly uh, attended a number of those kind of classes growing up. So drugs were on the mind of a lot of people. It was helpful in Reagan, I think, uh, earning election um, in that Jimmy Carter had urged the decriminalization of marijuana. Um, and Reagan took a different tact and described it as America's number one drug. It was described as a gateway drug. So there's a lot of um, momentum behind stopping pot. And like any place, it was coming into South Carolina but people couldn't figure out who was doing it. So uh, when Henry McMaster, who's the governor of South Carolina now, became the U.S. attorney or top federal prosecutor for South Carolina back in the 80s, he was a young man. He made it a priority to find out where this was coming from and who was doing it. So he and others convened a financial investigation. If they couldn't catch the uh, smugglers red-handed, they could possibly follow the money trail. And so they started looking into who was spending a lot of money. 
Um, what were their names? They went to car dealerships. Anyone buy a, you know, a Porsche on cash recently? Oh yeah, someone did. Here's his name. They started getting a couple suspects, but when they started looking at property records, um, they noticed that everything was in the name of offshore corporations. So they couldn't exactly find out who owned it. They had, they had a, a, sometimes they had names and things like that. They've sort of figured out this is just the tip of the iceberg. Wait a minute, maybe something big is going on here. These guys look somewhat sophisticated. And indeed, they found you know, this homegrown network of smugglers who were using the coast right and left to bring in tons and tons and tons of drugs, basically, um, without ever being noticed. Interestingly about Henry McMaster is he ended up, he had gone to school and grown up in Columbia as a boy with a number of the people his office would later prosecute. So these were, you know, childhood friends and, wow. and college friends and um, fraternity brothers are in the fraternity system together and end up putting those people um, behind bars and was very unapologetic about it. Uh, certainly, if you listen to his rhetoric back then, he um, fell in line with the, I guess, the Reagan way of thinking that, um, you know, equated uh, marijuana use with a lot of violent crime, break ins, things like that. Um, some associations that have come under, I'd say, criticism and, and uh, scrutiny and, and been looked at. Certainly today, marijuana is legal in many states, even for recreational use, and it's not. Um, has is um, recognized as having medicinal purposes. So um, stigma was much stronger against marijuana there and back then. And certainly um, Henry McMaster exploited it to his advantage. And, and certainly it helped boost his political career. And he's indeed in, in office as the governor today. How about how much time did these uh, smugglers serve? Um, it depended. People um, who cooperated with the government did a lot less time. So even if you were a substantial or a significant smuggler, if you agreed to be a witness for the government and testify against people you had worked with, you might get uh, two or three years in prison. For people who refused to uh, test, uh, testify against others, who refused to disclose where their assets were located, things like that, uh, the hammer came down a lot harder. So Les Riley, who was one of the kingpins uh, in Operation Jackpot, did about 17 years in prison. Uh, three of those in Australia, where he was fighting extradition. He was arrested over there originally. Another kingpin, Barry Foy, did about 11 years um, in prison. Another kingpin, uh, Lee Harvey, died in prison. He was given a 40-year sentence and uh, had contracted hepatitis before he went in prison and, and died of that disease there. So the, the sentences are a lot less stiff than they are today. And even some of those, even the long sentences were a result of parole. Uh, um, the short, sorry, they got out of prison. It could have been longer, but because of parole, um, they were let out. But now there is no such thing as federal parole. So um, comparatively, they got off a lot easier, especially for the quantities they smuggled and, and used themselves um, than what a modern day drug offender would, would uh, get um, in the courtroom. Yeah, that's great. I uh, appreciate it, uh, Jason. Appreciate it uh, very much. The book is uh, Jackpot High Times, High Seas, and the uh, sting that launched the war on drugs. Jimmy Buffett's mentioned in there and John Belushi and others. Do you have some other books you want to uh, let people know you have written and want to check out? Sure. Jackpot was my first book, and it's a great one, especially from South Carolina. If you want to try some others, I wrote a book about gangsters in Hawaii and a prosecutor whose son gets murdered. That's a true story about the uh, underworld of Hawaii. That's called Hellbent. And then I have my third book is Race to Hawaii, which is has no violence, uh, at least not, <laughs> not humans inflicting it upon each other. But um, there is some tragedy, I will say. It's about the first flights to Hawaii. And this is back in the 1920s. Uh, these brave pilots who took planes made of um, paper and wood and uh, hoping they had enough fuel and took off from San Francisco and tried to make uh, Oahu by the morning. 
That's great. Uh, Jason, thanks a lot, man. I appreciate it. Thank you again. Thank you so much. I had a lot of fun. I appreciate it too. All right. Once again, we always appreciate you joining us on the podcast. Feel free to rate with a five-star if you think we deserve it and to share the podcast. Uh, Also, Seton, where can they go to find out more in the comment and let us know what we should be doing differently, better, or uh, questions they have? Yes, you can reach us at Murdoch Podcast on Facebook, and we will try to get back to all your questions. We appreciate them. I also want to give uh, Seton a shout out to your school you spoke to. Yes, I spoke to St. Anne's School, and they were a great group of kids. They are doing a project on the Murdoch case, and I did a lunch and learn with them, and they had so many great questions, and I definitely, hopefully, look forward to speaking to them again. Uh, Ms. Reinhardt, thank you for the invitation. Sorry I couldn't make it. I'm in lockdown. That's why this podcast sounded a little weird as I uh, came in contact with someone with COVID, but so far, so good for me. We will talk soon. My name is Bill Huffman. And I am a former Cleveland news producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mihaljevic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts and Slow Burn Media production. Subscribe today, wherever you get your favorite shows. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there.